some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, or adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. Amen. God is good. All the time. Amen. So we're continuing our series in prayers in the Bible. Learning and gleaning from scripture what it means to uh, pray, as a, not only as individuals, but corporately as a body of Christ. And uh, it's been good. It's been a good journey. Uh, this week we're looking into, uh, we're looking at Jesus' parable comparing two different, very different prayers. And uh, I've entitled this sermon, Prayer of the Contract. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for that we are people of your word transformed by your word, and I pray that um, our focus and the things that we absorb would not be um, just on the words that come out of my mouth, but uh, from you, from the Holy Spirit, pressing in and uh, opening us up to you and what you want for us. In your name, amen. So the, Jesus tells a parable about being humble. And real in our prayers. And sometimes when I think about prayer, uh, we can use prayer as a tool um, to be self-serving and elevating ourselves into a in a certain stature while lowering others, or using prayers uh, to for a certain agenda, right? And I joke because I'm a pastor and I do this too. Sometimes pastor prayers up front. You give a second, it's like the second sermon. The prayer is the second sermon. And God, may you teach us how to pray. And blah, 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 blah. It's like you're using the prayer to preach. And so a lot of times our prayers um, can be used as weapons. We can weaponize our prayers um, to put other people down, to elevate ourselves, to look good in front of people. And Jesus is kind of hitting this, targeting this, and he's saying, you know what? You know what kind of prayer that my God, that I value, that's valued in the kingdom of heaven, are real, authentic prayers. Prayers that come from a humble, penitent, repentant heart. And what Jesus is doing in here is he's flipping the script on what people consider as important, right? The system, uh, the temple system and religious system of the day, what's considered honored, what's considered righteous, what's considered justified, and he's turning it upside down on its head and saying, actually, what's on the bottom, what's forgotten, what's considered not righteous or not good, is what is desired in the faithful prayer, in the faithful disciple. And so let's take a look at this a little more. The Pharisee, it's interesting that he uses two examples of people in the day, of that day, the Pharisee 
and the tax collector. And just for a little bit of context, the Pharisee of Jesus' day, um, it's actually a religious movement of rabbis. The Pharisee is a rabbi. But these rabbis in particular were interested not only in the written law and following all of the Mosaic law, but they were interested in the oral law and traditions. And they became experts in the Mosaic law, but also the interpretation of tradition that came out of that. And so they had a whole oral tradition, a, a whole oral law of customs and ways of being righteous, of being pure, of being cleansed. And so they were hardcore defenders of this. And many of them were rabbis and leaders uh, in the temple. And they filled the ranks of the Sanhedrin, which was a ruling body in the temple that um, enforced religious law, enforced religious tradition, and were the ruling body in that day. Um, the tax collector, in contrast, and maybe you can put it on the next slide, just so we have that contract. In contrast, the tax collector's prayer, uh, or the tax collector was someone who was despised amongst uh, the Jewish people because they worked for the oppressors, the Roman government, and they co collected the taxes. But when they collected taxes uh, that the Romans levied, they would, they would collect extra. So if it was like, whatever, 4%, then they would collect 8%, and they would take the extra 4% and pocket it. So they were considered greedy, they were considered evil, they were considered sellouts. Um, the bottom of what you would say in this kind of social religious culture, in the social religious system of the day. And so it's interesting in and of itself that Jesus uses these two characters in his parable to talk about what it means to pray, to talk about who was justified when they prayed, because he turns things upside down, right? He takes the Pharisee, who's the top, who would be considered the top of the righteous scale spectrum, and puts him on the bottom, and uplifts this tax collector, who would be on the bottom, and raise him up, raises him up as a model for us. And it seems like the last three weeks, we've seen this in our character, our people who are praying, and who Jesus calls out as being faithful, right? The faithful, faithfulness of the Canaanite woman, right? The faithfulness of this tax collector. The faith of the outsider is uplifted by Jesus, and it kind of turns, you know, it's a paradigm shift for his listeners. So what do we see about the Pharisee? The Pharisee, when he prays, the two men are praying, the Pharisee stands up by himself and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. <laughs> Could you imagine? I stand up here in my prayer time before the sermon. God, thank you so much that I am so holy, that I've read the Bible every day and prayed every day, so I'm, I'm prepared to give this sermon. Out of anyone in this place, you have given me the authority to speak truth because of my holiness and the good deeds that I have done. Thank God I'm not like Co here. <laughs> no man is Right? 
We'd be like, uh. Because clearly Ko is a better man than I am. <laughs> I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Meanwhile, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. On a surface level, this is an easy Sunday school lesson, right? It's a pretty straightforward, simple text, right? When you pray, be real, be humble. Don't be a hypocrite in your life like these Pharisees. And how many times have we heard, you know, come to church and heard the pastor rip on the Pharisees, right? Because Jesus ripped on them. And so, well, usually our posture is one of like, yeah, those Pharisees, they're such hypocrites. They're the religious type. And Jesus is for the people, about the people, right? I'm not like those Pharisees. It's those hypocrites, those televangelists, or those, those people who like flout their faith and then end up stumbling because they're living secret lives and get into sex scandals and all of those things. We're not like those people. Surely I'm not a Pharisee, right? I think I want to call us out on that. I think I want to call us out and say, actually... We need to step into the situation and learn from Jesus and be and allow Jesus' words to speak truth to us. Because we are hypocrites all the time. Right? We are hypocrites all the time. And actually following Jesus and being a Christian is not about how perfect we are or how clean we look or how we're dressed, how slick our blazers are. Right? Or that we get things together before we come on Sunday. But actually, it's how broken we are. How messed up we are. How we come as we are and recognize that, our depravity, and are able to say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? I, I'm not worthy. And I think it's so hard for us in a culture that's based on our resumes, our accomplishments, and being independent and self-reliant, right? We like control. And so we want to be look like we're in control. We want to have control in all situations. And so when we worship, we come to we come to church looking put together. We come to God looking put together. And it's so easy if you play it out that a peep individuals who think that way that come together and create a system of worship and church would create something that looks totally different than what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Amen? That's what parables are for. It's supposed to call us out and be like, uh-oh. So, um, let's take a bird's eye view. Because on one level, there's the individual, the individual, right? How we pray, be humble, right? Not, not a hypocrite, not thinking you're better than other people. But on the systemic level, 
Jesus is talking about something so much bigger. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus is ushering in also represents it's a revolution, right? It's systemic change for the salvation and empowerment of all people. It's no accident that Jesus chooses the Pharisee and the tax collector to be characters in this parable because in doing so, he's totally, like I said, flipping the script and turning things upside down, right? The first is last and the last is first. The genius of this parable is that Jesus, he flips a script and his listeners would have understood um, these characters to be, the Pharisee to be the righteous and the justified person and the tax collector to be um, the unrighteous and the not justified person. And yet Jesus in true gospel form turns this upside down. This is more than a Sunday school lesson, right? More than a Sunday school lesson. I want to approach the application of this on a more macro systemic level. Let's take the temple for instance, the uh, social religious system of the day and hyperimpose today our church culture in America on this temple system. Let's just hyperimpose it on there and see what it could be speaking to us. How do we as churchgoers, as leaders, as pastors, interpret religious law and determine and enforce what we deem as righteous and justified? Are you following me? Let's talk about race and ethnicity, for instance. And you know, I've repeated it many times, they, the saying that Sunday morning, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated time in our country. And that's speaking towards the trend that many of our churches are very monocultural and one, one with one ethnicity or one way of doing things. And I think the reason, like, the reason that this happens is that we as people have unspoken preferences uh, that in our own oral tradition, we talk about the Pharisees who were experts of not only the Mosaic law, but the oral traditions. In our own oral traditions, we deem as holy and righteous and the only true way, right? In church, we take the, fun the form and the function and we say, that's the, we've always done it that way, but not just like that's a best practice for us or that's just a strategy or a technique, but we say that is the way that God wants it to be. Amen? Or not amen? <laughs> so there was a time... 40 years ago, I think 40 years ago, when having drums and an electric guitar was sacrilege, right? Now it feels almost like singing hymns is sacrilege for some communities. And actually hymns, when hymns came out, they were actually shaped and formed and like composed following uh, bar music of the day, right? The same verse and the same pattern. And so in their day, those hymns that we say are like, oh, they're old school, right? Those hymns were like radical. Uh, oh my gosh, those are bar songs. You, gotta, you just got to put this into context, right? Does your church clap on the one and the three or the two and the four? <laughs> two and the four people. <laughs> 
Do you sing gospel music in church? Or Bethel? Or Hillsong? Or whatever is out there? But the question I want to ask us is, what does Revelations, the vision in Revelations, what does praise and worship look like on that day when every tongue, tribe, and nation bow before God and praise Him? What does that sound like? What does that look like? What does multicultural, multi-ethnic worship sound like? Uh, I don't know. And I don't think anyone can ever profess to know true worship music because we can't make it without the other person. No one group can make it on its own until that day. We can try our best to be faithful, and we can try our best to empower different voices and different talents and different traditions, but no one group can, can carry it all. And that's the whole point. So back when I was on staff with InterVarsity, you know, there's a huge missions conference that InterVarsity puts on called Urbana. Many of you probably heard of it. And so there'd just be amazing worship. 20,000 people in a stadium worshiping God from all different parts of the country, all different parts of the world. And one, one, one time that, one worship time that I can't forget is when they had Native American uh, worship a drum team and they were decked out in full regalia. And, you know, they told the story of how, you know, when missionaries first brought the gospel to the Native Americans, how they looked at their kind of their, their dancing, their music, their drumming, you know, and their, you know, their regalia and were like, that's pagan. Right? You can't, if you're going to become Christian, you have to strip yourself of those things. Because when we sing praise on, we play guitar. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do drums. That's like, that's weird. That's like, whoa, pagan stuff. And so part of becoming a Christian for many people in our history means stripping yourself of your cultural identifiers. Right? But that doesn't... But what we're really saying is you assimilate yourself to the dominant culture, right? Not the culture of righteousness, God's culture, but whatever it is, white culture or European culture or whatever that culture is, that's bringing that message. And so when that Native American team was able to worship in their full regalia and dance like with power and drum, it's like, man, I never felt or experienced worship in that way, no. right? Yeah. And it was also that there were tears for many of the students who are Native Americans because it's a redeeming mm -hmm. of the, you know, the things that are important to them, not a like casting away. This is what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. This is what Jesus is talking about. All of that stuff. Pharisee, when you're praying, all of that stuff you guys are talking about in your traditions and your rules and how you should be pure, clean and unclean, worship the Lord, that's not what it's about. God looks at the heart of a person. 
And Jesus is stripping those things away and saying, it's about being in, my, in our father's family. It's about coming home, and there's a place for you. Amen? Yes. So yesterday, I was at a softball tournament, and this is an inter-church softball tournament. It was the 18th annual inter-church softball tournament. And I'll tell you, this is a Korean inter-church softball tournament. And so it has its own, like, special set of rules and special things that happen. But, you know, I've been going to this tournament off and on, you know, since I was in high school. Um, when I went to the Korean American church and then soon after ran away from the Korean American church and uh, in college when I, you know, discovered diverse fellowships, the multi-ethnic fellowship in InterVarsity and all of that stuff. Uh, and yesterday, our team, we had like three Mexican guys, three Mexican Mayans, like four Samo big Samoan guys, you know, three white guys, two Korean guys. It was just at, uh, what is uh, Kiwo? Uh, Tongan or Fijian? So just, it was, the rest of the teams were all Korean. We were like this, like, people were just looking at us like, what? <laughs> like, we, we have not experienced this before. And it would have been better if we were like really good and just dominated everything, but no. <laughs> next time, next year. What uh, I was thinking just about my own journey, like, I understand the need for immigrant churches, right? That it's their language, people need a place to go. And even in the second generation of Korean American church, it's very monolithic, even though these kids may have grown up in the States. And I understand that too. I understand that. Some people, when they're used to code switching out there and work and school and being, you know, kind of translating all the time, you need a safe place to go, right? Where oh, you can let down your hair, you can, you can be yourself, you don't have to explain everything, right? You eat kimchi and it stinks like garlic and like you don't have to explain that, oh, this is kimchi, it smells, right? You don't have to explain it, right? There's a, there's a place and church can be that place where you don't have to code switch, right? But the thing I was thinking about for my own journey is, but now what, right? And that's where the journey that God is taking me on is. There's more. The question is not just being safe and comfortable in this place, but the question, the continued discipleship is, and what's your place at the table of the kingdom of heaven, amen? When every tribe and tongue and nation is sitting, do I believe I have a seat at the table as well? That I don't have to just be a quiet Asian guy who assimilates and doesn't stick up his head or cause trouble or rock the boat. But that I should have a place at the table, amen? And say, and have, have a voice in what church should look like or what, how church should be or how our country should move, amen? Yes. And so stepping into that, not, not staying in that place. And I thank God, not to say that it's like levels, but I thank God that my call is to renew a multi-ethnic church pursuing diversity. Amen? Because we have a voice at the table. And I, and I know that there are 
my colleagues, there are many pastors uh, who are past white pastors, male pastors who are churches, uh, are pastors of churches and changing communities. Seattle, Bellevue, the North, and everywhere in Western Washington, the demographics are shifting. If you work in the schools, you know, right? <laughs> and yet their churches aren't shifting to reflect their neighborhoods or their communities. And they're asking me, how do you do it? And I have to hide Uriel and Magdiel, who are on my staff team, because <laughs> they're going behind my back trying to recup recruit them, right? Two Mexican staff, how did you do that? And the, the belief behind that is, if we hire a person of color, if we hire a Mexican brother, then we can do ministry to Mexicans, to Spanish speakers, right? It's just going to happen if we put money into it. No! When people ask me, what does it take? And I'm not saying this out of pride, because we have a long way to go. And if God wants to do it, he'll do it. If he doesn't want to do it, he'll wipe us out. <laughs> right? But they ask me, what is it? How do you have a diverse church? Or how do you do multi-ethnicity? And, and I say to them, are you, are you ready to lose power? Right? Because you can hire people and put money into it, you're still in control. You still have the power. And this is what Jesus is talking about. That's the Pharisee, right? Look at me and look at them. And we all are guilty of this. We all have a us in them. And we all say, oh, those people are not righteous. Even I'm like, you can get into the whole multi-ethnic church like fad and be like, look at that church. They're so monolithic, right? They're all white. They're all Asian. They're all this. They're not like us, right? That's the same thing. Pride goes before the fall. And this is what Jesus is talking about. In order to make systemic change, because God heard his people on the earth crying out, and so he sent Jesus to create access for all of God's children, to break the, the barriers, to break the obstacles that keep people from coming to faith in God, to, to shut those down and say, come to me, all you who are weak and weary. Come, let the little children come. Come, come, come. That's what Jesus was about. And it takes everyone being humble. The disciples had to learn how to break down their paradigms inside and become humble, right? The Pharisees, in confronting Jesus, were constantly confronted with their own pride and their cultural elitism and breaking those down. Those who were considered unclean or Gentile, the Samaritan woman, Canaanite woman, other people who were Gentiles were actually uplifted by Jesus and given power and given confidence. We see this continue in Acts, Acts chapter six. A complaint rose among the Hellenistic widows about the distribution of the food. And what you see is, okay, the disciples are like, okay, here are Gentile widows at the food bank complaining because it's unfair. And so what do they do? They appoint a list of people, and if you read the list, it's all Greek, 
the Hellenists, to run this. But it doesn't stop there, right? Lest we say, lest your application be like, oh, me as a, it's, this is about delegation. Me as a pastor shouldn't be going to the food bank messing with all of these little ones, right? I need to be focusing on preaching, right? I can't be at the food bank. So let me appoint Miguel and Uriel to run the food bank, right? So they can deal with the Mexican people who are complaining. No. <laughs> because if you continue from Acts 6, what happens in Acts 7? Stephen, who's on that list, who's a Greek, is martyred. Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Not only are they, the Greek men, uh, apostles, chosen to administrate this ministry, they are actually the ones shown to be doing what the apostles are, are saying they need to be freed up to do. They are being apostles and witnessing, amen? So they're not just being delegated to, to be this, these administrative people. They're the people being the apostles and doing the preaching and teaching in the ministry. That's what we see. In 7 and 8, Stephen and Philip take center stage and what the Holy Spirit is doing in the advent of the church. Amen? So what does it look like to not just pursue tokenism, but actually humble ourselves and say, we need to learn and to really lift up people? That's culture, that's race. What about gender? Uh-oh. Women in ministry. You can say, we can say we're for it. We're part of a denomination that has affirmed women in ministry and the ordination of ministry since 1976. Woohoo, woohoo! We bad. But still, 90% of our churches are led by male pastors. And there are still churches in our denomination that when a push comes to shove, when it comes to pastoral search, there won't be a woman candidate. Because the reality is, most churches believe if you have, that's the end of you, if you hire a woman pastor. Because it's not, you're not Saul. You're not a head taller than everyone else. You're not a man who brings power and authority, who can do like get things done in the church. Right? And so we still wrestle with that. Just lip service. We can say we're about it, but do we do it in practice? To practice it is much, much harder. Even in our staff teams. You know, we had... Uh, Erica Cox was my associate pastor here for a while, and she taught me so much, right? Whatever, I, Dave Sim, graduated from a liberal arts. I used to wear Birkenstocks, and I was an English lit major. I'm sensitive man. If I grew my hair out, I'd be sensitive ponytail man, right? That doesn't mean, that doesn't erase, you know, that I grew up in a patriarchal culture and household, right? and that there are things that I miss. And so actually working with Erica brought up a lot of stuff. Oh, that's actually how men would do it. Or you're not listening to me. Putting things into practice is actually really hard. And if you really want things to change systemically, I think your leaders should feel it the most, right? Your leaders are gonna feel like, oh, I'm losing power, or oh, I don't get this, or I don't know how to speak this language. I feel incompetent. I feel out of control. And you know what? That's a good thing. And I'm learning more and more. That's the secret of leadership. Like, out 
thank God I'm not like those people. OMG, they voted for Trump. <laughs> that would be that more awesome. Or, they're Democrats. How can you be a Christian and a Democrat? They smoke. They ride Harleys. That person has a tattoo. That, person, that pastor doesn't have a tattoo. <laughs> that pastor does hot yoga. Yoga. <laughs> become proud in our own towers of Babel and reject those who are squandering on the ground below. But listen up! We are renewed! We are renewed! What will make us who we want to become? What we dream to be is what we come... Oh, now I'm reading. What we dream to be is that we come regularly to God in a real, humble, in real, humble, and contrite ways. Lord, search us. See if there be any hurtful ways in us and lead us in the way everlasting. The renewed dream, and you can hit the next slide. The renewed dream, and this is on our website, is for people in North Linwood and beyond to experience the grace and mercy of God and to be transformed as images of God. We believe we are given to in order to give away. And so we will endeavor to love and serve our neighbors tangible ways. We are relational, an authentic community where everyone belongs. Two, passionate about justice and mercy with a heart for the marginalized refugee and immigrant. Three, a community that values diversity. We desire to be multi-ethnic, intergenerational, and we encourage the diversity of backgrounds within our leadership on all levels of leadership. This is how we should pray. This should, it begins with prayer and how we pray. And we should take this parable of Jesus to heart. When we pray, be real, be humble, be repentant in prayer. Psalm 34, 18 says, God is near to the brokenhearted and contract in spirit. God is near to those who are brokenhearted and so um, we are going to do a liturgy of repentance as our worship response. <laughs>